Arjuna-lambito-bhujo-kanakabhata-to-sankita-naya-kapita-ro-kamalaya-takso-vishvambaro-dvijabaro-yuga-dharma-palo-vande-jagat-pekaro-karunavata-ro-vande-shi-krish
to be a Sharanagata, a surrendered soul. So we gave some practical explanation of what that means in relation to the first verse, Vachu Vegam, Manasa Vegam, Jiva Vegam, Udarapasta Vegam, Etan Vegam, Yovishahita Dira, Sarvam, Apivam, Pritivim, Sasishat. The need to control the urges of the mind, the urge to speak and taste, the urge of the belly, the urge of the reproductive organ, the urge of anger, to bring all these things under control. And we explained to some extent that the means to do that is within the context of applying oneself in hearing and chanting about Krishna, which is the essence of Krishna Bhakti, to apply oneself by being in the right space, so to speak. This is a kind of a modern way of talking about what it means to be a Sharanagata, to have one's heart in the right place. What is that right place that we sing every morning? Satchakori magiyami shukomala pran tavapriti bine prabhu nachahiboan. This is Sharanagati. This is not even Sharanagati. This is aspiring to be a Sharanagata. That uh, Satchakori, in truth, I hope, I aspire to say, truthfully, to honestly be able to say at some point, Satchakori magiyami shukomala pran. With my heart softened, not hard-hearted, mean-spirited, but humbled with a softened heart. I pray, we pray to be able to say, to honestly be able to say, I don't want anything else. I don't want anything else but love for you, love for God. Is it prepared to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the most magnanimous uh, avatar of Krishna, Krishna himself in a magnanimous disposition, appeared to him, so I can honestly say, I want only love for you, nothing else. To be in that space, that is what it means to be a Sharanagata, and then hear and chant about Krishna, then progress will come. Therefore in Gita, when Krishna says, it's very easy, he says, uh, what is this book about? What is this discussion about? With Arjun, Krishna says to him, "Manmana bhavamad bhakto madhyaji mamnamaskuru, mame vaishasi sattam te patijani priyosime." He says, uh, "Just be a devotee. Think of me. Think of me means not so easy, but he says, just think of me as if it is easy. Just think of me. Only me. It means like the inhabitants of Vrindavan are just thinking of Krishna." Even if they try to stop, they can't. We try to think of Krishna, and so many things get in the way. They tried to stop thinking about Krishna, and they could not. Always think of me, that's what that means. And become my devotee. So always thinking of me, that's what's involved in becoming a real devotee. He gives this simple formula. Oh, it seems simple, but it's talking about what it really means to be a devotee. Always think of me. Be my devotee. Manmana, bhavamad bhakto, madhyaji. If you can't just always think of me, which means to be my devotee, then madhyaji, mamnamaskuru, then do vaidi bhakti. Madhyaji means ritual. Do ritualistic bhakti, the window to reality of spontaneous love. Do that. That will lead you in that direction if, if that is your goal. And namaskar, 
give up your ego. It means namaskar, nama, not me, with regard to others. This way, he gives this verse in one sense, we can say this is the essence of the Gita, but why the next verse is emphasized even more? Sarvadharman purittaja mamikam sharanam braja ahuntvam sarvapapi dumukshe shami masucha. Because in this following verse, Krishna speaks of Sharanagati. Previous verse, he spoke about the drama of being a devotee, the drama of bhakti. Then he quickly said, put the stage in place of Sharanagati. Then the drama can be performed. As he said last time, if the stage is there, then coming soon. <laughs> coming soon to a stage near you. The stage in your heart has to be erected. And if it is, uh, with this kind of disposition, this kind of spirit, and then you hear and chant, then that whole show, that drama of Krishna Leela will, will appear there. And it, it will so much consume you that others in your company will be consumed by it also. It has such potential. This is God's play. From the drama of our human life, we have to come to interface with, with God's play. And it said, if you can't beat him, join him. So the drama of our human life, as exciting as it may appear, or as exciting as we might like to think it is, that we want everybody else to be caught up in it along with us, even though it's not satisfying us, it pales in comparison to Krishna's play. There's no comparison. There in Krishna Leela, you can find the furthest reach of human potential. Human life gives us the potential, not just to reason, but to love. And the full, full face of love that is realized not only when love becomes love of God or properly centered, but when love of God becomes love of Krishna, when Krishna is the conception of Godhead that we center our love on, there we have then the fullest potential for the expression of love. And this, of course, is the, is the very spiritually, you can say, scientific analysis of Rupa Goswami, Rasovai Saha and Akila Rasamrita Muti. So we want to be a Sharanagata. And in the context of being a Sharanagata, then certain things that are not favorable to devotion, we'll push them aside. So that's what we're in the midst of discussing here. Verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 2 talked about the need to control these urges. And verse 2 discusses the fact that because we don't have control of these urges of the mind and tongue and so forth, that other things happen. We get preoccupied with, with, with other things. And these things, we should recognize them and curtail them, curb them, because sadbhibhaktibhanashati, this verse says, they have a, a damaging effect on the budding uh, development of the fruit and flower of the bhakti uh, lotta, the creeper of, of love of God, of love of Krishna. So because that's what we want, love of Krishna, we should take these verses very seriously. So, what are those six things? Rupa Goswami says, Atyahara, Prayashascha Prajalpo Niyamagraha, Janasangascha Loliamcha, Sadbir Bhakti Vinashati. These six things. Atyahara. Ati, Ahara. Ati means too much. Too much. And Ahara means eating. 
This little book of 11 gems has been commented on over the centuries by great uh, teachers in our lineage. In the Gaudiya lineage, and within the Gaudiya lineage, in the Bhaktivinoda Paribar as well. The first commentator that I'm aware of was Radha Govinda Goswami about 400 years ago. He wrote a small Sanskrit commentary on Upadesh Amrita. And then about a hundred years ago, maybe 110 or so, 120, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, Seventh Goswami, as he's sometimes called, Saptama Goswami, he wrote a commentary. His follower, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, wrote a commentary, and his follower, disciple, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada wrote a commentary, all in the same lineage and some within the same lineage within the lineage. So there's a need for constantly discussing these gems and other such books like this. And if you study these various commentaries of, of these four spiritual luminaries that I mentioned, you'll find that their commentaries are very much uh, relative to the climate of the times, the religious climate of the times. My Gurmarsh, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Sami Prabhupada, his commentary is, is interesting in as much as, if you, if you study it, you see comparison compared to the other ones, he's very much trying to be relevant in the times in which he was making his presentation, which is obviously an important thing to do. But he's spoken on this verse in particular, and... Um, previous verse as well and, and the following verse but this verse in particular in a way that that serves very much to illustrate if you look at it in relation to the previous commentaries as well illustrate the universal application of these principles that are being discussed here not only universal in terms of spiritual importance but they should be followed if one wants to come on the spiritual platform regardless of what particular tradition or what reach within transcendence one seeks, aspires for, whether it be Nirvishesh Brahma, Vaikuntha, Shantaras, Dasyarasa, or Golok, Sakya, Batsalya, Madhurya, anywhere in between, any combination, whatever, just simple liberation, whatever one may want with regard to spiritual attainment. These verses, the first verse, it should be obvious, this is important. Everyone has to come to grips with that. This verse as well. But not only that, not only in terms of universally applicable in terms of spiritual life, but this verse in particular, it's apparent that it's universally applicable in terms of just common sense, just living in the world in which we live today. Of course, we should live in the world in which we live today in terms of our spiritual aspiration in a particular way. And it just so happens that that particular way, that yama-niyama in the yogic context, for example, that moral and ethical foundation that the yogic experience arises out of, it makes very much practical common sense, even if you aren't interested in a spiritual ideal, ultimately. This first word is very obvious in this regard, atyahara. It says one should not overeat. It sounds very simple. And a lot of people are saying that, but what we find here is, it is interesting is that such a simple common sense thing, we say we should eat to live, but not live to eat. The Epicurean 
lifestyle is not a very uh, wholesome one, not very sound, not practical, not healthy, not environmentally sensitive. But as simple as this is, obviously it's a point that many people miss, especially in this country. Obesity is one of the major um, killers, I believe, in this um, culture of excess. As wonderful in many respects as this country is, it also has <laughs> its shortcomings. And uh, the excess of Americans is probably something that's noted all over the world, where there's less. <laughs> And sometimes where they are aware that to some extent the less is due to the excess somewhere else, like in this country. So, as simple as this is, the wonderful thing about a book like this is that it takes such a simple principle and takes it as far as you can go with that, bringing it into the context of its importance in, in spiritual culture. Because it means here, not only one should not ati ahar, eat too much, one should not overeat. So you think, well, God, we're going to give a class on that? I mean, I, everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. Again, everybody knows that, theoretically, but because the tongue, which was discussed in the previous verse, is voracious and difficult to control in terms of its tendency to taste, even though, even the stomach says no to us. Of course, it registers between our ears also, and then we make the determination, but it speaks, the point is, even uh, to a mindless person, that uh, enough is enough. But the tongue continues to speak in its own way in terms of its tendency to taste. And so while the stomach says no more, the tongue says more, and so a problem, overeating. But besides overeating, which again, now this is, in this sense, it's a comes out of the previous verse. If you don't control the tongue, then you have this problem of overeating. So it's saying to us some reasons why we should be controlling the sense of taste. Because if you don't, you overeat. And what are the implications of that? Health problem, you are exploiting, taking more than your share, more than you need to live. So there's a meanness to this. It doesn't sound mean in one sense, but the implications of it are that there's a meanness towards others results from overeating. But besides overeating, the word atyahara means also overeating or over-collecting. So we would go beyond just food, which is the basis of kind of over-collecting. Eat, we had to eat to live. So if we overeat in the name of living, that's not good. But it's a form of collecting. So the word means to over-collect, to hoard more than what you need. Now, what we need, that will be different for everyone. Within the, the context of a spiritual society that has divisions like monastics, for example, and householders, then it will be different. In a classic sense, for a renunciate, to save money, save money in the bank, people always wonder why, you know, I don't have money <laughs> saved in the bank. <laughs> because uh, that's a... Well, it's against the principles <laughs> of renunciation to save money, get it, and spend it for Krishna. But for a householder, to have some savings account, that is very practical. There are so many emergencies that may come up. Householder has a license for that. So when we say, don't overeat, don't overcollect, and if we speak about it in strong terms, these things in this verse, atyahara, prayasya prajalpo. These first three, overeating, overcollecting, over-endeavoring, 
and uh, speaking about meaningless topics, gossip, and we'll go into these in detail more, but these three things were spoken of by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to Raghunathas Goswami in Antilila of Chaitanya Charitamrita. You know, Raghunathas Goswami was a um, young man and he had a strong desire to leave behind all worldly affiliations and enter into the life of a mendicant following in the footsteps of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He made an approach in his youth and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu personally told him, relax, take it easy, don't be crazy. If you're really interested in this, go back home and time will come. It will be apparent to you that Krishna has made an opening for you. So he was cautioning in the beginning, all of us, oh, it sounds good. Yes, I'll give up everything. Because we have, material life is troubling in so many respects. So many responsibilities are there. And we hear about the spiritual ideal and we think these material responsibilities are getting in the way of our, our realizing that ideal. So there's a tendency to want to run away from them sometimes in the name of spiritual pursuit. We should avoid this. There are no problems, there are no impediments to our spiritual life. Only other than the desire to, to pursue it. There are no problems in life, only service opportunities that we are confronted with. Bhakti is a haitiki, so there's no, there's no impediment to that. Any situation can be turned into a spiritual situation. Whether you live in the morning, in the forest, as a monk, or you live in the city, with the family, Thakur Bhakti Vinodhis doesn't matter. Sadahari Boledak, always take the name of Krishna, always chant the name of Krishna. So, Mahaprabhu first cautioned Raghunath Das Goswami, and so he followed that advice, and indeed the opportunity did come. And the measure of his enthusiasm had been tested by the initial advice of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And rather than it waning, it only became more and more inflamed and reached such a pitch that the doors of opportunity opened and he went out and walked and see the nature, the, the measure of his enthusiasm. Twelve days he walked through the jungle, not by the main road. Because had he gone by the main road, his wealthy father would have come and brought him back. And indeed, his mother commissioned him to do so. Go, bring him back, find him. They went on the main road, traveled a long distance to find him. Father came back disappointed. Mother said, he's gone to Puri. Jagannath Puri. He must have gone through the jungle and the farmlands, the back roads, walking barefoot, not knowing where he would sleep. And indeed, some nights he slept in a cow shed next to the cows. He ate what he could find along the way. For twelve days, he traveled like this, arrived at Puri. Father could understand this is what he's done, and mother said, yes, he must have gone through the back roads. So she insisted, go to Puri, and you'll find him there. But when the father realized to what extent the eagerness of this boy was that he didn't go by the main road knowing that he would be apprehended even though that would obviously be an easier way to travel he took such risk to go through the jungle the forest and so forth and the rural lands and this is you know this is 500 years ago in india fairly wild at the time he took such risk not to be caught at such physical pain and, uh, and sacrifice father realized there's no point. There's no point. Mother said, put handcuffs on him. 
and bring him back, shackle him. And his brother said, if this boy can break the bonds of family attachment, what good will material, ordinary shackles do? Such a thing, he's, he's broken that, he's truly broken that. Therefore, we, we offer our pranam to him. Oh, so many young boys or young girls want to join the ashram or join the mission and so forth. And parents will caution them and question the, the level of their enthusiasm and so forth. I saw many young boys, many young girls join the ashram and gave up their families only to have their own families <laughs> in time and move out of the ashram. And so these are hard, strong bonds, strong ties, and difficult to break. So therefore, most people should follow a gradual course. You can fully engage in bhakti in family life. But some people have that kind of urge for the monastic life. Raghunath Das was like that. And it was real. His father could recognize it, acknowledged it. So he gave up and simply offered respect to that type of spiritual enthusiasm exhibited by his son. So when his son arrived in Puri, he had nonetheless the wealthy backing of his father. And father would send monies to Puri so that he would be able to maintain himself. But he didn't live off of that. He's going to live as a renunciate, so he couldn't live off the money from home. He wanted to live only on the kripa, the mercy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So he positioned himself at the gate, the lion's gate of the temple, Jagannath Puri temple. And whenever anyone would come out, whatever they would give in a day, that's what he would eat. So the news of this came to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Das Goswami, Raghunath Das, he's, he's staying at... Uh, he's, he, this is the way he maintains himself. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was very happy to hear that. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had put him under the care of Swarup Damodar Goswami, his personal secretary. Swaruper Raghunath. The Raghu of Swarup. We should think of him like this. He's very charming. The Raghu of Swarup. Swarup Damodar, under his care. And under the care of Swarup Damodar, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, uh, Raghunath Das asked, I want to get some instruction from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Swarup Damodar said, had no objection. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu told him what? I have no objection to give you some advice, but I tell you, the advice of Swarup Damodar will be better than my advice. He knows more than me. But when he heard about the renunciation of Raghunathas, he couldn't understand who he's a very serious fellow. Again, the request came. I want to hear something from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Again, Mahaprabhu told him, better you hear from Surup Damodar. But if you want to hear something from me, I'll tell you something. So he gave him some advice that pertains to this verse. But it's important to note on the side the stress of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to Raghunathas Goswami that you want to hear from me, but you will learn more from my disciple, even. Surup Damodar, he said, he knows more than me. This is the whole parampara system, you see. Surup Damodar will never think, I know more than Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But the way the parampara system works, parampara means from guru to disciple, who becomes guru to disciple, who becomes guru to become this chain, succession, is like this. If you want to look at the stars, and you say, I want to see the stars. And I offer you a telescope. He said, now I want to see with my own eyes. What will you see? You understand? People want to see God. People want to talk to God. Hmm? 
I want to go direct to God. But God is far, in one sense, like the stars, and vast. He's close, but we distance ourselves because we don't control the tongue, we don't control the mind. These things have control of us. Therefore, we are overeating, we are overcollecting, for example. These things make us far from God. They don't endear us to God. So we, being in this position and insisting, I want to go direct to God, that is like well, I want to see with my own eye the stars. Yes, you can look, and something is there. <laughs> so then if I offer you, I convince you of the wisdom of the telescope. The telescope is made up of so many lenses. Big lens, smaller, 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 smaller. So if you take it, you say, all right, all right, I will look through the telescope. This means, I will accept the Guru Parampara to see God. All right, this concept. And then you take the telescope and you put the big lens in here and the small lens at the end. And I said, no, you have to look through the small lens. No, I want to, if I'm going to be connected, I want to see the big, look through the big lens. <laughs> big lens I will look through. What will you see then? You will see less than you can see, even with the naked eye. No. It comes to us in a particular package, just focused for us. If you look through the small lens, then you will see everything you can see about the stars in the sky. So Guru Parampara is like that. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was instructing us like this. He told Raghunathas, you hear from Swarup Damodar. He knows more than me. I have put you under his care, so I am present in him in a way that's particularly designed for you, suited for you. And you can draw the most from me from that quarter. So we should understand this principle of Guru Parampara. It is very important. It is not big guru, big mantra, small guru, small mantra. Big guru, small guru, same mantra. And who is big and who is small? Rupa Goswami had one disciple. I think he's pretty small guru. <laughs> <laughs> but his one disciple is Jiva Goswami. Lokanath Goswami had one disciple. Narottam Thakur. Narottam Thakur had thousands of disciples. So big, small, how we calculate all these things? If we try to calculate with our mundane powers of evaluation, then we come up with only a mundane understanding. So we have to try to go in a spiritual way, look in a spiritual way. Actually, it may come to us much as a surprise how our guru comes to us. Maybe very different than what we were thinking. It's, it's quite possible. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was teaching this by instructing Raghunathas Goswami. But he did say, uh, but anyway, I'll tell you something. If you want to hear something, I'll tell you something. Now, you can imagine, listen closely. He's going to say something very important. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself is going to say something to Raghunathas Goswami. Interestingly, he told Raghunathas Goswami, you listen to Sarup Damodar and he will give you Antaranga Bhakti, Antaranga Shiksha. You'll get all the secret esoteric meanings from him. But if you want something important from my lips, I tell you this. What did he say? Gramya kata na shunibe. Gramya varta na kohibe. Bhalana kohibe ar balana pahibe. This is the first thing that came from him. He said, don't listen to gossip. <laughs> this is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu teaching him. <laughs> You think, well, do you have anything more important to say? Therefore, the emphasis is how important this is. 
Don't listen to gossip. That means prajalpo that is coming here in this verse. Atyahara prayasha cha prajalpo. These first three things. He says, Grami Katana Chinibi, don't listen to gossip. And Gramyavarta na kohive. And don't talk gossip yourself. Don't do that. Control your tongue, he's saying. Don't engage in this kind of useless talks. And he says, Bhalona Kohibe. He said, Don't eat. Bhalo. Bhalo. Kumbhalo. <laughs> Don't eat in such a way that you'll be inclined to overeat. He said, Don't eat fancy, rich food, the diet of an Epicurean. You don't do that. It means don't overeat also. And he said also don't uh, don't wear fancy clothes. Don't chase after the fashions and these things. These basic kind of instructions he gave. I want to just mention this for the purpose of emphasizing. These points are important. From Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's own mouth they came to Daskoswami. Who is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? Who is Daskoswami in our lineage? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna himself. Sakshat Brajendanandan Krishna. Directly that coward boy of Braj, Krishna, coming as a devotee of himself. And what kind of devotee of himself? Of the caliber, of the disposition, of the mood of Radha, the highest ideal of devotion. This person speaking to who? Das Goswami. What is the position of Das Goswami in our Sampradaya? Prayojan Tattva Acharya. That means he's the Acharya, the teacher, about the furthest limit of the reach of bhakti in the transcendence, the prayojan, the goal. Sanatana Goswami spoke about Sambandagyan, wrote about basic conceptual orientation. What's what, who's who, how things fit together, what's the world, what's you, what's God, and God's relationship with the world, God's relationship with you, these things. Rupa Goswami, about what follows this type of conceptual orientation, the natural activity that follows that is bhakti. All about bhakti and how to execute bhakti. And what is the result of that bhakti that follows that conceptual orientation, that is the fruit, the prayojan. This is the, was the main focus of the writing and example of Das Goswami. So you have the prayojan, Tattva Charja and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And they have the one conversation that we know about, and Mahaprabhu says, don't overeat, as I tell you this. Don't waste your time just talking useless talks. This kind of advice you give. This is important to us, not to skip over. And we'll jump to the higher thing and want to know about how antaranga bhakti, internal service, or anything, but this we are not we have not put this in place. It's difficult to put in place. But it's easiest to put in place if we put our heart in the right place as the Sharanagata and then hear and chant about Krishna. Then it will become easy to do these things. This is the idea. Atyahara, don't overeat and don't overcollect. And overcollecting means also don't overcollect knowledge, not just things. But our material life runs on two planes the physical plane and the mental and intellectual plane. So we may collect things, but we may collect ideas, thoughts, and there are so many of them. And so many of them are useless <laughs> in terms of what we what we want in life. What our in terms of attaining our our ideal, even in the context of bhakti, over collecting, reading too many books, 
this can be a problem. Madhyamadikari, the intermediate devotee, will want to bring his faith, his tender faith in his heart, in sync with his capacity to reason. If his or her capacity to reason is brought in connection with the heart and that faith, then that faith can, two things can happen. If it's not done properly, that faith can be lost. Faith reaches beyond the grasp of reason. It comes from beyond there and it is extended to us. Faithful persons who come from the land of faith, they can clear our doubt. They can make a space in our heart for divine faith, enough that we can culture that divine faith and remove all doubts and live in the land of faith. That's a happy land. No doubt. Don't doubt it. Doubt means we proceed with caution. It's like you listen with caution because you're listening to some extent with your reasoning power. And if it passes your reasoning power, then you let it go into your heart. Okay, I'll take that. That's understandable, that's natural. But if we can, if we can capture your heart, then you stop thinking about it. You understand? You'll be happy. Everything, yes, you just, everything, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> we have to arrange the talk logically and speak the language of logic and reason, but underlying that is the language of heart, which is unspoken language. Or if it is spoken, it's only lovers can understand it. So we couch that feeling and sentiment in a logical presentation to people who are human, who speak the language of logic with the hope to awaken love, love for God, love for Krishna. Faith comes from beyond the grasp, the reach of intellect. It touches us, and through a faithful person who has, who has such divine faith, it makes a little place in our heart, but it's tender, it's tender. We have to cultivate that. And part of the cultivation of that is that it's meant to consume us entirely, this faith. Therefore, it has to consume our intellect. But there's somewhat of a battle between intellect and faith also. Because after all, faith reaches beyond the grasp of intellect. So everything that we believe doesn't always make sense. But then we try to make sense out of what we believe and there's a place for doing that. And if we do that properly, in good company, with good guidance, in the context of spiritual practice, faith will become strong. It will become very strong. If we don't do it properly, an intellect will, will gobble that faith, will devour that faith. And our tender standing in bhakti will be lost. Still, we have to do that. Because we cannot simply go along and not have our intellect engaged. This is not about having someone else do the thinking for you. This comes further in, in this verse, further elaboration on this point. But with regard to atyahara, over-collecting, we should be careful not to collect too much knowledge and information. We have to strengthen our faith, rationalize it, make some sense out of it and so forth and engage our intellect but collecting too many useless facts hmm, that will not be helpful that is also cautioned against here atyahara atyahara prayashas prayasha means over endeavor it means in one sense to endeavor for goals that are separate from bhakti like mukti uh, mukti is within bhakti but to pursue mukti at the exclusion of bhakti 
that will not be helpful for bhakti, obviously. Or to pursue heavenly attainment. This is a general way of thinking about it. But otherwise, it prayashas means to live within one's means, to not put oneself in a position where one has to be constantly endeavoring to the point that he or she does not have the sufficient time to apply oneself in, in spiritual practice, over-endeavoring for whatever it is, a particular standard of, of living that's just beyond our, our means. We should settle for less. More, as they say in the Buddhist uh, Buddhism, more less is less is more. So, to not over endeavor, make an effort beyond one's capacity. We should make a strong effort for bhakti. But even when in the context of bhakti, we should make an effort that's practical in terms of our present standing and so forth, not an artificial effort. So, atyahara prayashas, prajalpo. So, prajalpo it means again idle idle talk. And idle talk, be, gossip also means, gossip invariably leads to fault-finding, criticizing, not constructively. This is very detrimental. Faults we are preoccupied with in others will become our own. We'll come to own those. This is the way the system works. If you are too preoccupied with the faults of another, they will become your faults. You will relieve him, and you, they will become your burden, if not in this life, in the next life. So we should be careful not to gossip, not to criticize others, not to say things. It also means to say things uncontrolled, to say something mean to somebody. This is also prajalpa. Actually, the word prajalpa is, of course, a Sanskrit term, and it's also found in uh, the aesthetic literature of India, literature of the arts and, and drama, poetry, and so forth literature from which Rupa Goswami borrowed a structure to explain the nature of Brahman in terms of its being rasa, ananda, rasa, rasovai, saha. Jalpa means talks, and there, there are explained ten different types of talks. Prajalpa, Pratijalpa, Ajalpa, Abhijalpa, Vijalpa, Sujalpa, all these kinds of things. This is all, it's called Chittajalpa, Divyanmad, a kind of a madness. And Rupa Goswami has explained all of these things in great detail in his book Ujjval Nilmani. Examples of all of these things appearing in, in Radha, for example, or gopis, like in Brahmaragita. Brahmaragita in Simon Bhagavatam, when Uddhava came from Dwarka to Vrindavan to bring a message to the inhabitants of Vrindavan, when it came time to give the message to the gopis, Oh, he was stunned to see the standard of their devotion. He was stunned by everyone's devotion, but the gopis in particular, he was stunned by that. In fact, he, he used to just walk around for two months. He walked around in Vrindavan singing various poems about the nature of their devotion. He was very taken by them. At one point, when he was delivering, came to deliver the message, Radharani ignored him and began speaking to a Brahmana, to a bumblebee, who was circulating. This is pretty mad, a lady sitting in a forest talking to a bumblebee. So she went on in this Chitrajalpa, all types, all ten types of this Prajalpa, Pratijalpa, uh, Vijalpa, Sujalpa, Ajalpa were expressed by her in Brahma Gita in about nine verses. 
Rupa Goswami has analyzed all of those verses, explained them with other examples. This is a so certain uh, various expressions of divine love and madness for Krishna exhibited in Sri Radha. So the, the, a lot of these terms, like prajalpa itself, particularly in aesthetic language, it means to speak harshly and with uh, show some envy and, uh, and whatnot. So Radharani is speaking like that to the bumblebee about Krishna. She envisions the bumblebee as, as a messenger from Krishna and tells the bumblebee, who, who cares for that guy, Krishna? And uh, she criticizes him in, in, in so many ways. Who was looking at that and staring at her and seeing, not that she's criticizing Krishna, but that, that she's so in love with Krishna. She's so absorbed in madness, love for Krishna, that she's speaking like this to this bumblebee about Krishna. And however she talks about, she can't stop talking about it. Even though she speaks critically, he understands she's absorbed in him, she loves him. And you can't criticize a person that much unless you really are attached to them. <laughs> you just can't, can't give them up. So I bring it up only, be, only because, as I say, Prajalpa also means to speak sharply uh, towards others, and, uh, critically and so forth. Otherwise, in a very general sense, it means it means gossip. And in, in, in the low end of the spiritual spectrum, it's important to us not to speak prajapa, but it's it's worth mentioning that in the high end, it does culminate in that. Hmm? <laughs> All the gossip of the brudge. We want to become absorbed in that. That is our ideal. So in order to counteract this tendency of the uncontrolled tongue and mind, that we don't think before we speak, and then we feel sorry afterwards, hopefully, and we should at least, criticize someone, useless debates, debating for the sake of debating about this purpose, that cause, of this, wasting time, wasting time like this, talking to hear oneself talk, that's all. And it means, also, on the computer, he's become a guru, hiding behind a keyboard, can say anything, anybody, nobody can see what he does, what he's like, not accountable, giving my opinion. Like this is all prajalpo. So much of that's going on. And all in the guise of spiritual progress, being concerned about spiritual progress. You see? It's all prajalpo. But the wonderful thing is that we can overcome prajalpo by prajalpo. <laughs> what it means is if we become absorbed in all that village talk of the brudge, everyone talking about Krishna and Radha and their secret meeting and all, this is the main subject of, of the brudge. We become absorbed in that, then we have truly meaningful speech. And the tendency to criticize others and to speak meaningless talks and all this, this will be easily done away with. So be a Sharanagata and practice talking about Krishna. Ultimately, we want this kind of gossip, village talk, but not in an ordinary sense. So that's, this should be Control. In Mahabharata, again, he told Raghunathas Goswami like this, Grami katana shunive, Grami bartana kohibe. Don't listen to that kind of talk and don't engage in that kind of talk yourself. This is a huge waste of time, a huge loss. And so much of that is going... I mean, there's a point we, we have to talk, we have to, and we have to say things. And we, and it also can mean this. There are material things worth talking about. Prajapa means also reading a newspaper. 
But there's also a place for reading the newspaper in bhakti. There's a point where it becomes prajalpa, and there's a point where it becomes very important for propagation, for example, for disseminating a, a doctrine. You have to be relevant. Once, the director of Shiradev Goswami Maharaj told his godbrother, Bhakti Hridayat Bhavan Maharaj, two godbrothers of my Guru Maharaj, speaking, Shridayat Maharaj and Bhavan Maharaj, and Shridayat Maharaj told Bhavan Maharaj, you know, you really want to preach a lot and disseminate the teachings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He said, you always like to talk about Krishna consciousness spreading. And he said, my advice to you is read the newspaper. If you read the newspaper, your preaching will improve. Bonmars could not take that. What it, he thought he was insulting him or something like that. But then when he went to the West and he read some newspapers, he realized that instruction. Later he told Chidamarsh, I, I actually I appreciate that now over, over time. Because if you want to present your tradition, especially if it's an old tradition dating back to antiquity, well, you have to be a little relevant. You have to live, in the, live really in the world that you're in if you're going to talk to the people in that world. It is said about Sridhar Maharaj that they used to say, Oh, Sridhar Maharaj, if he reads the newspapers, it's like reading the Veda. Because he's going there with a purpose in mind. He can sit and read the newspaper. Or he can sit and watch the television, watch the news, and use that. Or it will be used at some point in Krishna consciousness. But if it's using you only, and taking all of your time away from Krishna consciousness, from thinking, from practicing it, and from doing it, doing the practice, because you're always thinking about it, then then you've succumbed to some extent to Prajalpa. So there's a place for this. But with, uh, in other words, the idea of this is we should be living in this world in the least as a sadhaka. What I am is a sadhaka. This is what I do. I'm engaged in spiritual practice. There are other things I do that I need to do to live, to be relevant, to be live with integrity in the world that I do live in, things I have to take into consideration and so forth. It's important. It's important even to my spiritual progress. But that's why I'm doing it. That's the extent that I'm involved in the material world. That can be considerable. And that depends upon the person. But the test of whether I'm the world is involving me or I'm involving the world in my spiritual culture, well, we should be able to determine that with a little uh, honesty, and integrity, self-examination. And if we're not good enough at that, then... We should be under the guidance of someone who will tell us. That's enough. i tell you a story. I wrote to Prabhupada once because I hadn't gotten a letter from him in a while and uh, so I really wanted to write to him, but you know, I didn't want to write to him and just waste his time. So a godbrother of mine, I was in uh, New Orleans and I ran into him and he was a well-educated fellow, unlike myself, and... Um, he had a copy of National Geographic, and the National Geographic had a, a whole huge issue on the latest developments in modern science. This was many, many years ago. So he, he had been reading it, and he, and he showed it to me. And, and so I looked at it, and I wasn't that interested in it, but I thought, Prabhupada is always talking about science, and about how the scientific uh, worldview is not a comprehensive worldview, and there's... A lot of Prabhupada's talk about science and where he used to debunk science and criticize science and so forth. We should understand that properly because really, for the most part, what Prabhupada's trying to do is to get his disciples to think and to question authority and to think for themselves 
more than he is really throwing out anything that modern science has ever discovered. Because obviously there are many wonderful things in terms of living in the world that have been um, brought to us by scientific revolution. At any rate, he used to debunk science and some, to some extent. Really, he was trying to efface our, our faith in such authorities to question them. So, at any rate, I thought, Prabhupada's uh, talking about this, so I'll send him this magazine so he can be up to date on the latest findings of modern science. And this would be an excuse, a reason for me to write to him. And I'll get a note back. And so I wrote to him, I'm traveling in a van with a couple of brahmacharis, and we go out and they're circulating this message. And we were living in, just in a van and camping out and whatnot. And um, I told him we were eating very simply and living like this. And I, th- I found this magazine, all the greatest fi- findings of modern science, so I thought I'd, I'd send it to you. So the letter came back from Prabhupada. And it said, it's very nice that you are traveling in a van with some brahmacharis and living simply and worshiping the little Gornatai deity that Prabhupada told me to worship. I have those deities at my ashram. And uh, he said, please continue in this way. And I'll, I'm very pleased with this kind of thing. Nothing about the magazine at all. <laughs> and then he signed it. And then at the bottom of the letter, he made a little asterisk. And in his own handwriting, he said, the magazine it is overly materialistic. <laughs> I, I kind of took from that, and he was telling me, don't waste your time. You, anyway, might, others maybe they can read, but for you, this was not a... You're doing fine. Live simply in a van. Can that Krishna? All knowledge will come. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> so, maybe some place for that. To be relevant, we need to have some information. To live in the world in a balanced way. And to understand our tradition also, our tradition, our spiritual practice in light of social norms of the day, in light of history and so forth, all this is important. Devaru Goswami says here what? Atyahara prayashascha prajalpo niyamagraha. This is a big, big one here. Niyamagraha. Niyamagraha means to follow rules without really knowing what they mean what the goal, what the ideal is, what's behind it, what you are trying to accomplish by doing so. Niyamagraha. Niyamagraha and Niyamagraha. Niyamagraha means following blindly and Niyamagraha means not following the rules. One thing is to follow them and make the rules as if they were the goal. And the other is to not follow the rules in the name of I'm into the goal. <laughs> Something like that. All these rules are getting in the way, after all. They're just rules. Uh, no, the rules, the regulations, cultural uh, considerations, uh, so, so many things, all these have a purpose. They're details. They're details of a spiritual tradition that can be adjusted according to time and circumstance. And it, the ability to adjust them according to time and circumstance is indicative of realization, understanding their purpose what's desired to be accomplished by them. We say that the vani of the guru is more important than the vapu of the guru. Vani means the words of the guru, and vapu means the form of the guru. Say the wor- his words are more important than his person. Of course, without his person, we wouldn't have the words either. So both are very important to us. Also, in his person, in the company of his person, we can see how he himself applies the words practically and dynamically. That means 
to us also that there is a vapu or a form to the vani, to the words. And we should follow the vani of the vani. It means like the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. So, you know, we, we come to religious fundamentalism, which is widespread. It's almost a phase that one has to pass through, practically, on some, some level or to some extent. It's widespread. It's easily identifiable. It's not hard, probably wouldn't be hard for anybody in this room to identify a Christian fundamentalist, meeting them on the street, having a conversation. We can all talk about it. But when the, to the extent that you may be involved in a fundamentalist type of orientation to your own tradition, it'll be hard, a little harder to sort out. Because whatever tradition it is we come to, if we sincerely apply ourselves and it's truly an ego-effacing and spiritual tradition, we're going to get some experience, some experience. And that is what's going to cement us to that tradition. Like, we, we, this is for real. This works. But because our experience is limited and our faith tender, in order to support it, we'll create enemies and think, yeah, but that tradition doesn't work. I know I get experience here. I doubt that they do over there. I know it's here. So this way we enter into our own tradition, but not too deeply. We enter into it. It's a deep thing, but we gravitate towards the, toward the fringe of it. This is called Barabahi in the language of Bhaktivinoda. A sadhaka who carries the heavy burden of the externals of the tradition without really understanding very deeply what they are meant to promote, what they're meant to bring us to. This is a huge problem in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, in any tradition. But we should be aware it's a huge problem in Gaudiya Vaishnavism also. What's really a problem is when teachers institutionalize this type, this orientation to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, as if it, it is the goal. So it's very important, this principle, niyam agraha, to, to understand the purpose of the rule. Also, it means that certain rules or regulations or principles will be appropriate to us at a certain time. And at a later time in our progress in spiritual life, they won't be. And the tendency to cling on to those things which previously brought results because they were appropriate at a particular time, when at a future time they're not, to cling to that, that will drag us down. That will curb our progress. So you see, spiritual life is very much daring type of a thing, and it should be exciting at every moment. It is exciting. We get into spiritual life, it's exciting. We thrust ourselves into a spiritual tradition under a spiritual teacher with a group of others, for example, and... Many, many people who we know otherwise don't feel like we do, don't think like we do, and we thrust ourselves into that uh, sector, and it's exciting, and we, we took a risk, and it, and it, was, a, it was a good thing to do, but our tendency for risk-taking is somewhat limited, and risk-taking is really what spiritual life is, is all about. Nothing risked, nothing gained. The whole of our material conception that we've tried to find security in, that should all be risked. And all will be gained from that. Nothing will really be lost. So spiritual life, spiritual progress is, is a bit, uh, it's exciting. It's like living on the edge. But we have a limited capacity for that. Our material conditioning wants us to be comfortable and secure. And so even we take a risk to join a spiritual tradition, we then allow it to answer all questions for us and stop thinking. That's a problem, because this is not about, I mean, it's about stopping from thinking in one sense, as much as meditation is about stopping the mind, 
But in order to really apply ourselves in terms of such meditation, we've got to think quite a bit about what we're doing and be introspective and so forth. Why do I follow that? Why did I follow that? Why am I following that? What does that mean? I gave a talk in Baltimore. Somebody asked me, what is the meaning of the four regulative principles, you know, this, this term in our tradition? And when they said it, I realized, wow, that's just what it's become. Four regulative principles. These four things. You don't do them. But what are the implications, not only of those things, but of the whole principle? What is it about? Just like devotees of Krishna, they will they'll be careful not to eat fish or eggs. And so they look on the bottle, any fish in here, any eggs in here? Or look on the carton, is there any eggs? And be careful like that. But what's behind it? I mean, yeah, the eggs are shouldn't eat it for certain reasons, and fish or meat and, and so forth in, in our tradition. There's good reasoning for that. But there's a greater principle involved there. The whole idea of the people that wrote about these things, they were ascertaining how to live in this world with integrity. They were measuring their environmental footprint, to use a modern term. That's what they were doing while in this world. It means they were forming an ethical basis out of which their yogic bhakti experience would arise. They weren't trying to just make fanatics who on ecodicy saw that 7-Up has, uh, you know, corn syrup in it. <laughs> you shouldn't eat grains on ecodicy, you know. This is fanaticism. There are implications in eating, and we should be considerate of that, and when it just becomes, just read the label, and, and, and that's all, there's no eggs in it, fine. What, maybe there's something else in the modern society that should be thought of that went into that, or that was involved in the production of that, that I shouldn't be a part of. Obviously, you can't go too far with all of this, uh, but you have to form a pretty broad base of a ethical and moral foundation to your uh, yogic experience. This is what the Goswamis were writing about. This kind of thing. So this pertains here to some extent to the discussion of Niyamagara. We should know the rules. Why are they? What the purpose of them is? What's the detail? What's the principle? What's relevant for me now at this time that may not be relevant later? And how to live on the, on the edge, as I say. Like my Guru Marsh, he gave us all kind of rules and regulations to follow. So many standards and things that his disciples would follow and so forth. But what he really did, if you study, is that he had all of us on the edge of our seats, ready to turn left, right, stand up, sit down, at any moment. Didn't he? That's the position. He had us in a very fluid, liquid kind of status. And yeah, he made a jar around it with principles and lifestyle and so on and so forth. But we should gravitate towards the condition that he had us in. That's what I mean by, to some extent, the cutting edge. And you can be then following all those rules, but not know how to apply them at the time we're in now. Just like I gave that example, that, you know, he's on the internet preaching, <laughs> you know, criticizing every other devotee. And so, this is his Prajalpo. This isn't preaching. Prabhupada said to preach. <laughs> Everything's in his books. But did you read them? Did you understand them? <laughs> So we have to be thinking, devotees. So, prajalpa niyamagraha. We should follow rules. We shouldn't think, I just give up the rules. And, uh, because the rules aren't where it's at. It's the goal. And in neglect, this will not help us. But to think that the rules are the goal, well, that is also as problematic. I'm telling you, that's as problematic. 
That's as much of a burden to the whole society of real devotees. I'll tell you something. As far as explaining, disseminating Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's principles and ideals to the world, the greatest impediment to that is the followers of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. The so-called followers. That's the greatest impediment. Who in the name of it don't really understand it and quote it out of context. All these things are important to consider. And last two things. Janasangas means association of ordinary people who aren't interested in spiritual life. We should not take that as our uh, company. We're all associated, at least in the household context, with people in our jobs, in our everyday life, with people that aren't interested in bhakti. Not that you should put on a, you know, a suit or something like that, and not to touch anybody else, or let them breathe on you, or whatnot. But it means to take association is to embrace their ideas. We shouldn't embrace the ideas of worldly people. We should try to act in such a way that they would be inclined by our example to embrace our ideas. It would be good association for such persons. Not that we fall into such association where ideals other than the highest spiritual ideal are being cultivated and pursued. That company obviously will not be helpful to us. So that should be avoided. Don't take it in a fanatical way, as I say. And lulyam. Lulyam means greed. And again, there's a double meaning here, of course. As much as greed is not in our interest, greed is in our interest. In fact, the term used for attaining Krishna bhakti is greed for bhakti. If you have greed for bhakti, lulyam ekalam, this is the only way you can get it. But that greed is exhibited in persons like Raghunath Das Goswami. That should be our ideal. And remember, Mahaprabhu told him, don't overeat, don't talk prajalpo. This is a place for focusing on all of these things in the context of cultivating that spiritual greed. And conversely, of course, Greediness for uh, material acquisition and these things, this, 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 this should be given up. So Rupa Goswami has mentioned here in a very nice poem, These things which arise out of not being able to control the mind, the senses, the tongue, all these things which are mentioned in the first verse, if you don't have it, these things will arise. These should be avoided. Recognize them. Then you'll see the need to apply yourself in terms of the first verse. And all of these things, both of these things, are in the category of what we call patikul, in relation to sharanagati, being a surrendered person, having one's heart in the right place. Patikul means things that are unfavorable to bhakti. I shall avoid them. So try to cultivate that. Any question? How can you tell Guru when you're talking, you know, criticizing unconstructively, like when you're just talking nonsense or just trying to fault find other people and when you're actually doing it for some kind of constructive reason what would be the criteria for something like that well I think you have to be honest with yourself and if it's constructive then it should show up the fact that it's constructive should show up there should be fruits of that there should be results of that in the minimum, the, the things that you're constructively criticizing should not show up in you. And obviously you must be talking to someone else. So, similarly with that person. Also, constructive criticism is detached. 
It's objective. It's without any malice. There's no malice in it. So we can speak strongly, criticizing someone, but if there's malice, if we find there's malice in our heart towards them, then it's a problem. Without malice, then that, then that would be welcome anywhere. Because you can feel if a person speaks without malice. He may speak strongly. It may sound like he really hates the person. The volume he may turn up sometimes about a conception. But constructive criticism is characterized by absence of malice and by objectivity. Another question? Yes. There's descriptions in the Chaitanya Charitamrita about devotees having big festivals and then eating up to their necks. That seems kind of contradictory. Yeah. Festivals don't happen every day. <laughs> so there's a place for celebration. In fact, uh, when Das Goswami had come and traveled the 12 days and nights with practically nothing to eat, Mahaprabhu put him in the care of Govinda and said, feed him for a few days nicely. <laughs> so there's a place for, especially in bhakti, for honoring the Lord's prasad. The whole concept of prasad, we, we discussed it a little bit last time, but uh, it's a big concept. Uh, really, in the fullest sense of the term, it, it means the deity will be offered certain things pleasing to the deity, and we'll taste them to see how the deity tastes so we can further enter into his mind in a oneness, a union of love with him. So we have often a kind of a scaled-down shadow. What? Superficial. Yeah, superficial or a shadow kind of of, of that full sense of prasad. In the low end, it means that I acknowledge that my sustenance is dependent upon God and therefore I offer my praise like saying grace. That's the low end of the principle of prasad. And the high end is prepared in a particular way for the taste of Krishna, especially on a particular day. You may eat something and then to taste that as he tastes and to live like that and his mercy. It's the higher end of it. But at any rate, in the bhakti tradition, Krishna, of course, is, is an Epicurean. <laughs> Ostensibly. He's, a, he's an enjoyer. But, uh, of course, the reason he can be an enjoyer is because it just turns out that his enjoyment nourishes everyone else. Whereas our enjoyment in excess is at the cost of the nourishment of others often. Because he is the center his excess serves to nourish everyone else. It's wonderful. So he's the rightful center, the rightful enjoyer. And so when we come in touch with him, we can't help but enjoy sometimes, also, even on a material level. He eats palatably, and uh, eating its remnants is also palatable. But again, every day is not a festival day. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself, personally, mostly only ate boiled vegetables and rice. But because they saw him as... Krishna, the devotees, oh, they wanted them to eat like Krishna. <laughs> so, all right, very nice to uh, speak with all of you. Thank you for your questions and comments. We'll stop there. <laughs>